The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. And welcome to A Hero's Journey, a literary podcast. I'm your host and judge, Jack, and I'm here with my revolutionary reds. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. Each week, we look at a different book through Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This week, we're discussing Golden Sun by Pierce Brown, which is immediately following Red Rising, a book we've discussed previously. As Pierce Brown tells us, after his victory at the Institute, Darrow wins prestige as well as a position in the employ of the Arch Governor of Mars. However, he finds it difficult to live up to his own legend, as he's ultimately unsuccessful at the Academy. Best to buy a familial rival of his employer, Darrow's worth quickly declines in the eyes of the art governor, uh, and then Darrow eventually gives the governor what he wants, which is civil war. Playing the Augustus clan against the Bolognas, Darrow throws society into disarray, sowing the seeds of chaos everywhere he goes. He amasses an impressive army as well as some dubious allies, and eventually leads to successful assault on Mars. We're going to start off with our departure from the ordinary world and our call to adventure, which is getting your ass handed to you at Spaceship Academy. Arguing for this week, Zach. So our hero's journey that Darrow is setting out in this book this week is to continue his infiltration of the golden society in order to benefit his red roots. Something that we saw heavily emphasized in the first book and the decisions he made at the very end of it to become uh, in the house of the arch governor of Mars um, being showcased even more so here in that he continued his military and political um, pathway via a, uh, a position at the academy in which he is doing extremely well. He's, he's set up to be the victor of this extenuated military exercise. He's tracking down the final victim. Uh, and once he puts that ship down, then it'll all be over. Unfortunately, as he is uh, celebrating and, and ready to return to the rest of society, his ship is intercepted by a Bologna ship that was hiding in wait that rams his own ship and uh, causes his ultimate admittedly second place finish. But in the views of society as a whole, it, it's viewed more as a loss than a, than a silver medal. Um, so this call to adventure really creates a scenario for Darrow in which this path that he thought he was going to be taking and had all been well laid out in advance has now had a wrench thrown into it and is going to require him to uh, think outside the box. That moves us well into a refusal of the call. Due to uh, losing his status in society from the events of the Academy, as well as the disrespect that he's shown by the Bologna family immediately afterwards by being ambushed and beaten, uh, this eventually causes Arch Governor uh, Nero to terminate his contract and let him know he's going to be essentially sold off as a, as a freelance agent to the house that is the highest bidder. This is more than unfortunate for Darrow because without the protection of the Arch Governor Nero, he's essentially being assigned a death sentence because the Bologna family has put a hit out on him. Now, this leads to him being contacted once again by the Sons of Ares, specifically Harmony, one of the ones who trained him in the first book. And she 
essentially tries to re-radicalize uh, Darrow for their cause, letting him know that he's failed even in the Sons of Ares' eyes because he's losing his sponsorship and that the only real way he can benefit the Reds as well as the movement of the Sons of Ares is to become a suicide bomber at this extremely well-attended event on the moon. And that uh, by going there and blowing himself up and all the uh, gathered dignitaries, he's going to create a situation that allowed the Sons of Ares to thrive. And... Um, by accepting this uh, proposition from Harmony and going through quite a few steps to make it a reality, uh, he's essentially refusing the call to continue that path of infiltration, um, kind of taking what some would argue to be an easy way out. Uh, luckily, those uh, plans are shifted as, uh, as he does come back to it uh, and creates a scenario that he thinks is still going to allow him to continue his infiltration, which in this case mixes up our departure a little bit uh, between meeting the mentor, crossing the threshold and belly of the whale, somewhat chronologically confusing, mainly because the situation that arises is him challenging Cassius Bologna to a duel at this event. Uh, in which we learn a couple things, one of which who his mentor has been in a part period that predates uh, the book that we don't actually get to see firsthand. Lorne, who was a previous Olympic knight and is considered to be the greatest swordsman uh, in the history of the society, has been training Darrow uh, for, for over a year in order to become a, an extremely talented swordsman. In fact, so much so that... Uh, that Daryl essentially wipes the floor with Cassius, uh, which is a um, a wonderful belly of the whale. And this was all made only possible by the fact that Daryl has lost his sponsorship from, uh, from the arch governor, which is him moving into new territory that he's not familiar with. Therefore, uh, the crossing of the threshold. Uh, so, Zach, like usual, I think that your quest is a fine one. Um, Daryl's goal is always going to be to benefit the Reds and to... Uh, really set them apart, set them on a new quest. So I think that this continuing infiltration of Gold Society and benefiting the Reds is a fine quest. Similarly, I think losing at the Academy is an interesting call. It's not one that I really expected. This is a little different. Um, when we last left Darrow, he had won in the Institute and now he's failing. So this is a good call, I think. But my question to you is if he had won in the Academy how do you think his quest do you think his quest would have been any different it, it seems like losing the academy wasn't really that like big of a catalyst for darrow so i almost entirely wholeheartedly disagree mainly because the losing at the academy is what prompts his loss of sponsorship which creates a swerve in the path that he has created there's a fairly easy, historically proven system that Darrow is trying to take advantage of here. Become mentee to the most powerful man on Mars, gain military and social renown through uh, victories at the Institute and the Academy, which is only going to propel him to further and further heights. In fact, one of the things that he really focuses on here after losing is that one of the points of the son of Ares sending him here was to have him eventually command a fleet to himself. And the fact that this fleet is not going to be something he has because he lost at the Academy is not only a huge blow to his self-confidence and self-worth, 
it is also a blow to that initial plan that he had in order to achieve his goals. And also just to add a nice little cap on that, Alex, I think we both know where Dara would be had he won at the Academy dead during the sixth course of dinner at the gala. All right. I guess that's fair enough. I I still kind of think that if he had lost the Academy, he would have, I mean, he was essentially told about this plot. So I I think he would have found out anyway and done things to prevent it, but sure. Would would Karnas have felt so comfortable bragging about it if Darrow had had any clout? Yes. Karnas is just a bragger. (laughs) Karnas is just an idiot. Moving on to refusal. Is this really a refusal? We, at the time, Darrow thinks that Harmony is leading the Sons of Ares and she tells him this is what's going to further the red cause. And she is conceivably correct, I guess. Um, if Darrow was to blow up a bomb, taking out all of the gold leaders, all of the peerless guard, it would have left a huge power vacuum. And who's to say that reds wouldn't have been able to fill that power vacuum. So is this really a refusal if he blows up everybody? Yes, it's still a refusal of the call because Darrow helps us realize as the reader that setting off this bomb won't dismantle the society. It'll deal a huge blow to the gold. It won't free the Reds from the oppression that they're currently under, and it doesn't align well with the dream of his now dead wife. Yeah, I I really see this as a refusal too. Um, I agree with you. It just needed to needle in a little bit there. And similarly, I agree with Lorne as the mentor. I think that even though this is off screen, um, it has to be for us to get the surprise. I, I have no issue with with Lauren acting as the mentor. Um, he is definitely mentor. helps Darrow and continues to help Darrow throughout his trial. So good, good job there. So let's let's skip over the crossing of the threshold for a second, kind of like you did, and go on to the belly of the whale. Yeah. Yeah, some um, clap in there, but not too much. When Darrow, when Darrow is fighting Cassius and starting the civil war, this seems like he's falling more into the gold mindset than helping the Reds. The civil war, I I can't imagine it's going to be good for the Reds. It they're going to have collateral loss of loss of life and limb. So why is this a reaffirmation of his quest to benefit the Reds? So on a smaller level, it ties up the gold's resources and interacting with each other in, in a conflict that allows the Sons of Ares to thrive and, and so that the golds can't commit all of their resources to quelling them. Um, but on a more important level, it keeps Darrow in the center of the action. It keeps him in the limelight and what's happening, which allows him to continue to rise in prominence. Uh, and by doing so, gives the Sons of Ares and therefore the Reds a strategic piece on the board on what's going on. It allows him to influence the things going on around him in such a way that will eventually benefit the Reds. Okay, so it's more about setting himself up to be a leader than really the civil war. The civil war is like a side effect of him furthering himself. No, because that... if 
if the Civil War didn't exist, if he he wouldn't have the ability to choose it. I see it as the reverse of what you're saying. Because, yes, the fact that he's fighting Cassius Bologna and that is a perfect excuse for what's happening, but Daryl would have had to have found an equally egregious situation in order to keep himself relevant. So what about him accepting the sovereign's offer would that also have fit for the belly of the whale if he's accepting the sovereign's offer furthering himself that way I think that would have been uh, a good a path that he could have chosen but i think it ultimately doesn't grant him as much freedom we see and we already see that position in this story being occupied by mustaine so i think the author is intentionally separating those two um we already seen how somebody who's maybe working against octavio can still be in her employee and we eventually see that far later without uh increased spoilers uh so to have darrow do it in addition would seem uh, superfluous i thought to me that it was the one thing that darrow and again we might edit this the one thing that darrow does right that even necessarily aries himself can't see because aries wants Darrow to accept Octavia's deal and Darrow ultimately decides whether it's revenge based in his hatred of Octavia that a civil being on the other side of the civil war is going to allow him to destabilize gold more fully than just being Octavia's fourth hand man. Yeah, kind of what I'm trying to get you to go at is Darrow can't survive in this power structure. He can't get his goal if he keeps the status quo power dynamics, right? He has to change the power dynamics to change the status quo of the civilization. So that, that was what I was trying to draw out of you guys. Yes, that's fair. The My question to you guys is, do you think that Darrow is fully aware of the fact that the sovereign was going to save Cassius or do you think it didn't matter if the sovereign saved Cassius or not because the blood feud that would have been extremely prevalent between the two major factions of, of golds I think he was happy either way but right he says he has his gotcha moment yeah I, I think he would have gotten his way either way but he wanted and thought the sovereign would save her save Cassius okay. yeah that's why he takes his time Right, he, he, Lauren says yeah. you could have beaten him in eight seconds, in two set, yeah, in two sets or whatever. And Dara goes, "My goal wasn't just to beat him; I had to right, I had to do more than that." Which is ultimately, again, I guess, links back to why civil war over Octavia. It's because partially for his own glorification and being a hero to the Reds, and partially because rebellion fosters rebellion. Agreed. Um, and just quickly on your crossing of the threshold, um, losing a sponsorship should not be really crossing a threshold, first off. And second, he doesn't lose his sponsorship. His contract is set to be sold. It never is. He remains in Aries, um, sorry, in Augustus's good graces. Like, no, this okay. isn't a, is a crossing threshold I, I disagree specifically about the points that you've brought up here. Um, he knows he's about to lose it yes it's not official and he hasn't been sold off yet but Pliny says straight up to him you can't use your name to barter uh, your 
the name of Augustus to barter favor with any romantic partners. You can't use it to get in places that you necessarily shouldn't be in. You can't use your influence of being a ward of Augustus, period. That is stop. He doesn't use it anyway. Well, that doesn't mean he hasn't been denied the privileges of the position. I'm going to cut us off here because I don't think this is the important part of why it's not crossing crossing the threshold. I think it's not a crossing the threshold because like we've had before, the where wherever crossing the threshold lies it's somewhere in this moment that is a better better belly of the whale right darrow steps into the new world when he declares civil war but that's so clearly an affirmation of his previous quest that it fits much better into the belly that's closing us out on the departure with just the crossing of the threshold missing uh really strong start but kind of as expected because Man, does the opening of this book just really try and hit point after point. Riding our claw drill into the initiation, we're going to start off with our road of trials, which is after you start a civil war, getting the fuck out of Dodge. So just like Jack has said, we've now initiated the civil war and we have to get off the moon uh, and we're, we're being met by extreme adversity from the forces of Octavia Luna, uh, specifically the death of the obsidians of uh, House Augustus, as well as the imprisonment and killing of House Augustus members by the uh, Praetorian Guard. They've had to face these unique situations, and Darrow comes up with plans in order to escape them, which includes them leaving on their own ship with a hostage, Um, And then eventually, once that bartering ship is no longer available to them, uh, jettisoning himself uh, into space to board uh, the flagship of Octavia and take it for his own in in a masterful stroke. So later in the book, Darrow goes to Lorne, his his, uh, coach, his mentor that we talked about earlier in the story, uh, who holds a lot of influence and prestige within the society as a whole, as well as a rather substantial military force. Uh, it's said that he he controls just as much as, as any standing army, and it's his own personal army. Uh, he's trying to get Lorne to join their cause to recapture Mars, and Lorne decidedly wants nothing to do it with it. Uh, but Darrow, in a pretty masterful fashion, creates a scenario in which Lorne has to pick a side, and he believes he knows enough about how Lorne thinks and eventually influences the scenario in such a way that Lorne has no choice but to join on his side of the uh, war of the no choice, but to join on his side of the civil war, which then leads us ultimately to our final road of trial, which is the uh, eventual invasion of Mars. It's something that takes a lot of planning and a lot of things to go right uh, and showcases really that Darrow is at the, what I would call height of his power uh, but still has challenges yet to face. Uh, we'll, and we'll get into some of those in some separate points here. Uh, then moving on to meeting with the higher power, we have this meeting with the sovereign that Darrow has while he's still on moon. So this is pre-escape of the moon in which he has a essentially truth or truth contest with the sovereign uh, in which he's able to still keep his identity hidden as a red uh, and learn a bunch of information about uh, the society and how Octavia has her power situated. Uh, most importantly, it also reveals a truth to Mustaine, who is currently in the Sovereign's employ, um, that 
uh, allows Mustaine to kind of see through the the wool that the sovereign has pulled over her eyes. Um, so I think it's really cool because for me, it's meeting with somebody who is at a higher power level, and then ultimately gives him the gift of uh, returning Mustaine into his good graces, uh, who then helps him with the uh, with the rescue from uh, Octavia with the Howlers. Now, our temptress for this story is a repeated theme from Darrow. It doesn't happen just once. It happens, I don't know, guys, a dozen times, uh, <laughs> two dozen it's times. The secondary th- it's the secondary thesis of the book. Uh, and it's essentially that Darrow doesn't trust his friends. Um, on multiple occasions for each individual friend, he doesn't trust them with a myriad of different information. And this is something that you would think maybe would hit Darrow a little sooner uh, but he does eventually learn from it, although we have to decide if he learns those lessons too late. For the atonement with the creator, uh, we have a situation in which Severo confides in Darrow that he knows that he's a red. He had his suspicions, but that Ares confirms them. And then he gifts Darrow a hologram video play machine uh, that... <laughs> I don't know. What do they, they call them? <laughs> no, I'm still laughing at the word confides, which is just wrong. such a great way of describing that conversation. I mean, Tell me or I kill us all. That's fair. Um, and having received this... Exactly. All right. Having received this holodeck from Severo, uh, he gets a his first and, and a very important message from Ares that showcases that Harmony had been lying to him, that Dancer was not dead, and that she had kind of gone rogue with her sect of the Sons of Ares, and that Ares himself was very proud of how Darrow had been acting and had been furthering the causes of the Sons of Ares, and that he should continue to pit the... He should continue to pit House Augustus and House Bologna against each other and further this civil war. Uh, So it's reaffirming the decisions that Darrow has made while also providing him um, with some atonement with the person who's ultimately responsible for who Darrow is currently. We then move into an apotheosis. During the capture of the flagship Pax, Darrow gains influence over an obsidian of the stained class, one of the most elite fighters that there are. And uh, this fighter proves invaluable throughout the remainder of the book. Someone who's a bodyguard, a, you know, eyes in the back of the head, as well as just a fierce military presence in battles. Uh, While they're on their way to infiltrate uh, the betrayer of the Mars house, Pliny, who has kind of organized a coup on Mars, Darrow sits down with Ragnar in an isolated area and confides him his entire backstory. Ragnar's is conditioned to believe that all golds are gods and Darrow really sits down and tells him the full story and imparts upon Ragnar that he has to choose for himself what he's going to be doing. And he does all this because he realizes that it's not just the reds who are being prosecuted by the golds. It's this entire societal construct that's been created, um, imposes its will upon the low colors as a whole as well as the medium colors for the most part and that if he's truly going to be successful in this rebellion and create a society in which everyone is is equal and is human before they are any one color then uh then he has to have people a that he can trust in uh, and b he has to bring in other colors into the fold and then finally we move on to the ultimate boon uh after 
all his trials and, and his other parts of the initiation, we see that Darrow invades Mars in an iron rain, which is just this amazing visual as pods descend from the sky and land onto Mars because of the way that shields are in this world and they have to advance on foot. It's such an, an awesome imagery. The execution of the plan is, is done extremely well and they do take over Mars for the benefit of House Augustus and to the glory of Darrow. Uh, ultimately rising his position in golden society, uh, which he's going to then further use to the benefit uh, of the Reds under the golden control. So a perfect ultimate boon. So starting off with the Road of Trials, as we always do, these are a good series of events. And I'm going to go back to something we we did early in the podcast. Zach, what change is Darrow undergoing throughout these three trials? I see like a hint of one. He develops this idea that the Reds by themselves cannot defeat the society. And he needs to go about this a different way. But is is that what you see? Is there a different change that you see here? I think there's several small changes that accumulate throughout the entirety of the book, specifically in the Road of Trials. Uh, he trusts people in ways that he didn't fully or wasn't ready to do in the first book. You know, he's very much a red. He's in an odd society. He's, he's viewing a lot of these people as his enemies, uh, even as he's amongst them. And it's in this book, he's definitely embracing the idea of alliances with people that he necessarily wouldn't have thought before. For example, the Jackal, for example, um, trusting Nero or Mustaine after she's betrayed him. Um, and I guess, I don't know if I should use the word trusting, uh, um, benefiting from alliances with these uh, different individuals. Um, so I think that is an important trend. He's trying less and less to do it all on his own, per se. And then we also th see something that I think is extremely important in this book, and it's something that Nero comments on several occasions to Darrow, uh, this rise in this democratic ideals underlaying Darrow's message. Uh, Nero plays back the speech that he makes to the pack ship, as well as the different ideologies that he shared with him along the way that showcases this is the model in which Darrow is viewing a societal change to benefit the low colors. And I think that using these things, especially showcasing his conversations with Lorne uh, and then his conversations with Augustus, that he believes this would be the, the best path to follow. I don't know. I think Darrow isn't lying when he says he's not a Democrat. He's a reformer and a spy, but I genuinely don't think he's a Democrat. <laughs> At least for me, the, the change that comes across here, as Alex kind of tried to force you to say, is it's learning to trust the other colors and to imagine his rebellion involving them and kind of the key mistake that he makes is his inability to truly trust the golds other than Severo. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm driving at. And um, for that reason, I'm going to con concede the temptress uh, in, a, in a second. First <laughs> off, this beating with the higher power, um, it happens a little out of order. I'm going to give you a pass on that. It, it's fine. I, I don't really mind that. Is Mustang really the gift that the sovereign gives 
to Darrow, though, or okay. Mustang choose to leave the Sovereign of her own free will because he wasn't a follower of the Sovereign anyway. So I think your problem with the viewing of this interaction with the Sovereign is not necessarily the Mustang is the gift. Mustang, we know, has a certain amount of information about how she's interacting with the Sovereign on her own right, something that Darrow's not aware of. And so he thinks she's just had a wool pulled over her eyes, but she really has her own plans. It's through this interaction and the information that the Sovereign shares at the end about how uh, the fact that the Sovereign was lying when she said she wasn't going to um, you know, kill House Augustus really showcases to Mustaine that her staying in the Sovereign's employ wasn't enough to even guarantee her family's safety, which is her number one priority, which wins Mustaine as an ally to Darrow in this situation, not just a third faction or uh, someone with her her own ulterior motives. But I also want to iterate just a, a little separate aside that the information gleamed from his interactions with the Sovereign even says in the story, she was so openly honest with me because she's that confident that this is going to go her way kind of adds validity to the information that's shared. Uh, while the death of the Augustus family that night is perhaps the most relevant for this uh, particular plot point, it's certainly information that'll be useful to the Sons of Ares moving forward. That's fine. As long as we acknowledge that Mustang was going to leave the Sovereign anyway, there's other information that Darrow gets from this encounter. So, sure, fine. And like I said, I like this Temptress because Darrow falls into it. He trusts the wrong people and doesn't trust the people that he should be. Throughout the book, until the very end, Darrow is not trusting Roke or Mustang the way he should be. He's trusting people like the Jackal. So I would maybe even extend this Tentress further from not trusting his friends to following bad advice and just generally mismanaging relationships. I, I think that Darrow has a terrible handle on who he should trust and what he should be doing in these interactions. Moving moving along to Atomo with the Creator, I like this video point, um, but I do want to kind of extend it a little bit even to when Fitchner reveals himself to be Ares and they have this more face-to-face -face talk. I know this is going out of order again, but that that like face-to-face -face encounter with Ares and this agreement that they're going to have daily meetings and they'll be sharing everything with each other is a, a bigger atonement with the creator than the hollow. Yeah, but it's also a master of two worlds. So moving on. <laughs> Got it. Sorry. That's okay. No, no, no. It, 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 it is truly the atonement of the creator and the uh, pet ant in me wants to point out that uh, technically Ares' first conversation with him where he reveals himself is flying through the air where he says it was always me, boyo. Boyo. So fuck you, Alex. I have a... You're wrong because you said one word wrong. All right. So, uh, for our apotheosis, I guess, um, <laughs> okay, we record that, so it doesn't, we're going to edit out the bit where I tell where I'm, 
a jerkle. Fuck you. Uh, okay. This apotheosis, I, man, I'm, I'm liking a lot of these points. Um, it, it's hard to argue against some of this. I like that this is kind of an extended apotheosis, similar to what we had in To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. It's, it's more realistic. There's not a singular moment that I can point to and say, this is when Darrow figured out, apropos of nothing, that he needs other colors in this rebellion, and he needs to trust other people people to help him it, again this is more like a realistic thing you don't just have this spark without some build-up to it so i appreciate that and i think arming ragnar is a the best example of this so when darrow arms ragnar he's risking something too he's risking that the obsidians could rise against him and they have already tried to take over the gold society once. Maybe they will try to take over the gold society and subjugate the reds just under a different master. And further, Darrow is, by arming Ragnar, announcing to the golds that he is doing something different. He's, he's taking a risk there that the golds could reject this idea and kill him for arming what was the greatest enemy, the only the only people that had shown a threat to them before this rebellion. So I, there is a lot of risk involved in this apotheosis. I ultimately do think that it is the right decision. Um, obviously going into the next books, having an army is going to be important for the reds and having this warrior class join them is a good thing like Darrow is correct in this apotheosis reds by themselves would not be able to overthrow that society and for any of our nitpickers out there this book kind of fits all three versions of apotheosis uh there's also a quite literal flash of insight moment with Darrow understanding finally the identity of Ares and there's also a sort of metaphorical apotheosis to godhood upon his successful capturing of Mars that Sephiroth talks about. So really just triple checks across the board. That should, so were you telling me this is getting at a, a 20? There are no bonus points. Uh, there are only harsh deductions. And sailing into the ultimate boon. Again, I kind of have to agree with this. Capturing Mars does seem like the, uh, like a pretty good situation for Darrow. He's setting himself up to eventually free the reds and that's where i want to kind of nitpick a little bit he's he's setting himself up for it but he still doesn't have enough power to free the reds or to lead them in open rebellion or to tell everyone that he is a red so there i think there's something lost in this ultimate boon even though it it does seem to be one so i would say the my immediate response to that is, yes, he can't enact the entirety of a revolution now that he's captured Mars. He doesn't have that ability. But we do almost immediately upon the capture of Mars see him using his position to tangibly benefit the Reds of his hometown. Uh, pretty much putting the people who abused him in their places and then providing feast and better working living and living conditions for the mind that he grew up. So we see him immediately taking tangible actions to improve the lot of reds. 
also we're we're given later on sort of a vision how this was the first along a different journey right so it is still a journey within a journey you're right it's not it's not the ultimate win of everything he's ever wanted but in series i feel as if it's it, i feel as if it's always very hard to get a boon that feels so totally encompassing in anything other than the final book that is going to close us out on our initiation with a perfect score across the board uh successfully landing from our own iron rain i give you the return so that brings us immediately into our refusal of the return uh Darrow has already successfully led the conquering of Mars. He's created a situation that many people at the onset of this civil war thought essentially impossible from the position that he found himself in, especially with the enemies being backed by the society and by Octavia Luna. But Darrow isn't satisfied. He could return to this situation in which he is the uh, golden boy of House Augustus immediately and, and, and use that to his advantage. But he risks it all to immediately go after the sovereign. He knows that she is there it's something that he planned for and something that he got that information by earlier releasing he kept a tracking unit on aja so he knows that the sovereign is there he he knows what she's going to be doing departing the area now that he's conquered mars and so he risks it all to board her ship and confront her uh so he's refusing to return to that reality um and he fails he does unfortunately fail but the good part for us is that he blacks out in his failure, so I don't even need to tell you why that's a magical flight. Uh, but to add even more to it, he is rescued uh, by Fitchner, who you'll remember from the first book as uh, the Mars Proctor, uh, who is now revealed to have been Ares all along. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> apotheosis that Jack uh, alluded to in our earlier point as well as, as a wonderful rescuing from the scene, uh, having not been able to, to adequately complete his mission uh, in regards to the Sovereign. Uh, for our crossing of the return threshold, after Darrow has recovered from these events and the conquering of Mars, as well as his blackout uh, and eventual rescue, Mars is returning to a general sense of normalcy. Uh, and as such, Darrow has made some interesting decisions. He's literally... Uh, a, as a minor point, crossing the return threshold to where he's from. But more importantly, he's integrating the abilities and the powers that he's gained along the way immediately, like we talked about earlier with the, uh, the ultimate boon, to benefit the people from which he came. He's providing better working conditions. He's hobbling the people who uh, were abusive of the Reds. Uh, he's providing an immediate feast with alcohol and food. Uh, and he's also trying to rectify the temptress that he had earlier in the story by trusting Mustaine um, with this information that he is a red. So I, I think this wonderful moment uh, in the red minds is something that encompasses a lot of varying aspects of the crossing the threshold. None of them to in a complete extent, but enough so individually that they add up to a wonderful point. Uh, for our master of the two worlds, I think we're looking at a real strong master of the two worlds He's a triumphant leader of the Golds. He's led uh, the the first Iron Reign to, to conquer Mars and the first Iron Raid uh, since uh, the rebellion of the Jupiter Moons. He is a one of the top dogs of Golden Society. 
but yet he's also in direct communication with Aries and Aries has directly stated to Darrow, now that you know who I am, now that you've done these amazing things, we're going to keep you in the loop. You're going to have access to my spies, You're gonna, my information, my technology. You are now going to be directly in the decision-making council of what's happening uh, with the Sons of Aries, which I think is a wonderful master of two worlds. And then finally, we have his freedom to live. We have the triumph uh, in which he is celebrating all these situations. Yes, just like a Roman triumph, he has somebody whispering in his ear, reminding him he's still mortal, which I thought was a wonderful touch. Um, but it showcases he's got his golden friends around him that he's, he's, he's learning to trust. Uh, and he has found himself in a position that he can help the people from which he's gone. All right, for our refusal of the return, going after the Sovereign, kind of like I was highlighting in the Ultimate Boon, I, I don't see this as a refusal so much as a continuation of the task that Darrow was trying. The only reason that you've put this as a refusal is because Darrow fails. If Darrow had succeeded in this, this would have been the Ultimate Boon, Right. So I, I don't see this as a refusal. So I think your primary point here is, is flawed simply because he's risking too much in an ability to achieve something that he has already mostly uh, succeeded in. And the, the main goal is to claim Mars for the house Augustus and by overreaching by doing it by himself, he leaves behind all of the howlers and sets off on this task, even though he's woefully unprepared uh, and is rescued simply by the actions of others. So what's really cool about this refusal is it's directly paralleling our refusal of the call here now and our refusal of the return in which again, we, we see Darrow acting as a suicide bomber. He jumps into the back of this plane to go after the sovereign with a live grenade that he's using as a bartering chip here. And it, that's this decision he's made, um, just like he was acting about as a suicide bomber earlier in the story at the gala. And it's brash, it's, it's, it's rushed thinking. And had he been meticulous about what his goals are and what he's trying to accomplish, he would have realized that there would be other opportunities to take the Sovereign on with the full might of the forces that he's created around him instead of abandoning them and going in, going in alone. Ah, wow. That's great. I didn't even think about that parallel. That's, yeah, I, I have to agree with you now. That's amazing. Yeah, sure. For our magical flight, rescue from without. Good. Um, uh, for this magical flight, too, that's pretty great. This reveal that Fishner is Aries and saving him, top notch, top notch. For this crossing the return threshold, hmm, I don't know. Like I, I see this as a good return to home, but just showing Mustang this video, does that really further him returning? I, I just, can you explain this a little bit more to me? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I think the primary point is the he's um, you immediately using the knowledge and power that he's gained along the way to benefit the people that he came from, I think is the primary point that I, I want to really focus on. But to address your question about Mustaine and, and sharing this information with her, um, if we want to talk about wisdom gained on the quest, which is a crossing of the th return threshold, 
the temptress of this story, the trusting of his friends or the not trusting his friends, everyone to phrase it as the, as the temptation versus the, the solution is something he's actively overcoming due to the wisdom he's gained on the quest. It says, and to integrate that wisdom into life, how to share it. Right. So he's actively trusting the people around him in exact juxtaposition to the temptress, which is why I like it here in the crossing of the return threshold, because it shows that he's actually gained some wisdom and learned something. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, Excellent. I, I love it. I think you're absolutely correct. For the master of two worlds, I see this sharing himself with Mustang as a little bit more of the master of two worlds than what you've laid out. This Ares giving him spies and information from the Reds. I don't know. That doesn't really seem like a mastery of the Red world. But when Darrow is able to go to his mother and his mother accepts him back as this red person. And he's still obviously the triumphant leader of the golds. I'm not denying that bit, but I think that this revelation that his mother still accepts him as her son, as a red is a more important demonstration of him mastering that world than Fitchner giving him spies. So, I think the delineation here becomes on what you want to describe as that secondary world. Is the secondary world the world of the revolt or is it the world that he originally came from with his family? And I think based on which you view as more important, you can skew the master world to fit either. But my primary problem with the one that you've showcased is that he does not do much to gain that mastery rather that acceptance from his mother rather than simply existing. It's an acceptance that never goes away and therefore it's not something all we're doing is rediscovering it. It's not something that he's earned. It's not something that, you know, he's cultivated. It's simply, he could have come back at any point in his journey, having literally just been hanged and deciding to not pursue the, with the sons of Aries or just after the um, Institute Either way, at any point in this story, he could have walked through that door and talked to his mother, and this same thing would be here. So I don't think that that particular piece showcases any mastery. If you twist it slightly and you showcase what his mother is saying to him, especially in the questions he's asking about his wife versus Mustang, he's being absolved of that guilt that's been overhanging. Throughout the book, he talks more and more realistically about his wife and her existing flaws, which is something that we don't see, her pre-existing flaws, which is something that we don't see at all in book one. And um, I, if we're going to be talking about his roots in his family life, I like that guilt being lifted um, through the realization of the process that he went along the way because he wouldn't have known to ask those questions to his mom uh, in order to receive that absolution if it hadn't been for the quest that he'd gone on. But simply getting the acceptance from his mother, I think, is something that is static, regardless of his of his point on his personal progression. I, I think that, that being static doesn't take away from his mastery of it. I think he, you're right. He's already mastered the Red World. It's just like family life. That's what's important to the Reds. Highlighted several times. So uh, I don't know. I like the static staticness of it. I guess, and this mastery. Well, so then I guess my, I mean, ultimately I don't think we're disagreeing on that there is a mastery of two worlds. 
if the family life is what we want to highlight and in conjunction with that absolution, then I think the mastery of that side of his world, we don't actually get to see it. We know that it happens ultimately, but I think it is Mustang choosing to accept him. Which we don't see. We don't see it, but it does happen. She doesn't shoot him in the hallway. In the right, he and Ragnar yeah. decide that if Mustang is willing to kill them, then truly there is no hope. Which right, the the whole scene with Ragnar. If we really want to talk about the um, the crossing of the return threshold and how it ties into his apotheosis about how trusting Ragnar in the end was something that doubly convinces Mustang about the the nature of his cause, it. What's so great about this is it interflows all these points in a way that says, oh, yeah, yeah, this step led to this step. Right. And that mastery of two worlds would have led perfectly. If everything had gotten to play out just right, it would have played into the freedom to live perfectly because Ragnar, right, they would have put themselves at this mercy. He would have gained this acceptance from his mother and Mustang and reconciled both the gold and the red in himself and then been free to live out the plans of the rebellion and finally kind of bring the world to some sort of peace. But hey, Alex, what happens instead? So the, this triumph is pretty great, uh, except for the There's an betrayal immediately following where Nero <laughs> is captured by the Jackal, this just insane villain that we had seen uh, Darrow loses the trust of his friend Roke, who's whispering in his ear, you're mortal. Like, it, this is insane that you even tried to say there's a freedom to live here. Uh, for our listeners who haven't actually uh, read the book, I'd like to highlight that Jackal, the character from the first book that he's improperly trusted throughout the book, is one of the ones that helps instigate this betrayal. Just in case you were like, really out of depth about how Roke was able to mastermind all this. It, it, there's a calm, there's a, a, a plethora of factors between the Sovereign's influence, Jackal's betrayal, and, and Roke's betrayal that really allow this to take place. Just wanted to fill you in. And that's going to bring us a close, to a close on the return with just that freedom to live missing. Uh, that's going to put our final score in total for Golden Sun at 15 out of 17, ranking uh, as one of the highest on our hero's journey scale. And really, it's very close to a 16 out of 17. That crossing of the threshold is just so wrapped up in some of the other points that it doesn't get its own moment. Let us know what you think. If there's a moment that really sticks out for you for crossing the threshold, reach out to us. You can hit us up at a hero's journey pod on facebook.com or at a underscore heroes underscore journey on Twitter. <laughs> And coming right on in with our closing thoughts, I hope you guys are ready to listen to us gush about this book for 30 seconds apiece. I am not predominantly a sci-fi reader. I almost wholeheartedly prefer fantasy to sci-fi. I found on occasion sci-fi books that I enjoy, but nothing that I feel pulls me in on, a, on multiple levels like this book has. I really much enjoyed Red Rising, but Red Rising felt like a fantasy book with a sci-fi skin whereas i think this book fully comes into its own, its own as a sci-fi properly built out world that has social interactions dynamic character interactions um there's uh both historical significance and the 
characters actually have consequences for their actions, not just the primary character, but several of them, as well as wonderful imagery. Um, I think that this book, uh, easily in my top 10 uh, of books that I, I've read of all time. Yeah, so like Zach, I love this book. I think that this is one of the best books that I've read this year. Um, even rereading it, it's still amazing. And this is definitely the best second book in a trilogy that I can think of. It doesn't fall fall into this like second book syndrome where it drags, you have to rehash things from the first book and you have to just set up the third book. There is just so much that happens in this book and it stands independent of the other two excellently. I can't, I can't say enough good things about Golden Sun. Like Zach, like Zach highlighted, there are consequences. People's actions make sense for the most part. I am worried about the characters the whole time. Even if I'm not surprised, I still have fears for these characters. Like their decisions are, they're taking risks and the decisions pay off and are satisfying, but they could have ended poorly. And we do get to see Darrow fail. Darrow is not an infallible character, and that's another reason why I love him. I think the best way that I can sum this is I often forget that this is one of my favorite books, and every time that I reread it, whether it's for this podcast or even just talk about it, this book just jumps right back out at me. I may go reread it tonight rather than go to sleep that's how much I love this and how much I just want to relive these moments that we just spent an hour, two hours talking to you guys about. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I've been your host and judge, Jack. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. And join us next week as we dive into Rage of Dragons by Evan Winter. Yay! Oh, thank you. Losing Losing's fine enough. It just, I wanted to make sure that it was, that it wasn't the, I was trying to remember if the pissing was no pissing was showing that it's not as gone. Yeah, yeah, the pissing. Um.